Please stand us and join us in worshiping our King.
You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you and welcome to church today. Uh, my name is Don Fraze. I serve here as a transitional pastor, and it's my privilege to welcome you. So, Bridgeway Congregation, welcome. Those of you who are guests visiting today, welcome to you. Thanks for being a part of our service. Now, I know that it's the nice and polite thing to say, to say, thanks for being here today. But, you know, today I had a real deep appreciation for it. Look at you out here. You are here in church this morning. Now, I drove down from Saskatoon this morning, and it was a beautiful drive. And, uh, you know, as I'm looking at all the beautiful fields and, and thinking about all the people, and then when I got down to the landing, and I'm driving across, and the lake was just perfectly calm and beautiful early this morning, and I'm thinking of all the people at their cabins that are going to be boating and fishing and doing all that fun stuff today on the water. The golf course was full already early in the morning. You know, and then as I got into Swift, you know, and I come up by the Elmwood Golf Course over there, and there's, you know, even more cars in the parking lot there than the churches I passed, and I'm going, wow! And, you know, I know I, know I say this somewhat in jest, but, you know, there's so many wonderful and good things to do, and summer's so short in our country, and I hope you've all had some time to enjoy the beauty of creation, and I hope you've had some holidays or some coming but I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, though, thanks for being here. Thank you for realizing that the worship of God and the gathering in community is important and you value it. Even when there's so many other awesome things you could be doing today, you chose to be here. So God bless you and I, I hope and pray that something in this service today will just really bless your heart. I hope this just won't be a oh, sat through church. Let's hope we can just get out of here. But that's something will impact your heart today. And I can't make that happen, sorry, but that's why we pray and depend on the Holy Spirit. So I pray you'll be encouraged and lifted up. But let me just start by saying, thanks for being here. Good for you. We're here to worship. And you know, we've been singing already about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who's really on the throne. And you know, as I reflected in this last week, it's been a, it's been a very key week for our nation I know I, I know I speak of things that could be very controversial, so I won't get into them, but with the visit of the Pope and all the different events that happened in our nation, it, it's, been a, it's been an interesting week. And I think that as followers of Jesus, even, even in the midst of a lot of confusion, in the midst of a lot of things we don't understand or don't agree with or, or just struggle with discerning the right way to think about things or act, the one thing I do encourage us as followers of Jesus is Let's be the people of Jesus. Let's be the people of God. And let's, let's be in a place of care. Let's be in a place of prayer. And let's be in a, at a place of just acknowledging with thanksgiving the great nation we live in and always remember what we just sang. No matter what's going on in our world, no matter what's going on in our nation, Jesus is on the throne. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're gonna be talking about that all through the service and, and even the sermon later. All right, well, I guess I do have a couple announcements. First of all, um, this is the end of July. I think you were all aware of that, the August long. So just a reminder that the office will be closed, closed tomorrow as Monday's the holiday. And then next Sunday is August the 7th, and it's a special Sunday for two reasons. It's Communion Sunday, so 
just be prepared if you're here next Sunday that we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And also after the service, it's family picnic time. So we meet at Southside Park, and it's just bring your own food, hang out at the park after church. Uh, I was at one already earlier this summer. It's awesome and fun to hang out together. So if you're around next week, we encourage you to be a part of that as well. And I hope you all either saw a bulletin electronically or got a page when you came in, but um, the other announcements, news is on there. Happy birthday and happy anniversary to those of you celebrating this week. I think there are quite a few in the room today, so uh, blessings to, to, to each of you. All right, well, we're going to have a time of prayer now, so I'm going to ask uh, Dave Kerwin, one of our elders, if he would come and uh, share with us and then lead us in prayer as a congregation. Morning, Dave. Good morning. Hello? Okay. Good morning. Um, So, something that I've been praying a lot about recently and really thinking about is seeking the will of God. So, for me, it's really easy to make plans, uh, to prepare things, get everything ready, and to try and follow my own will or my own plans instead of seeking what God would have me do. So I've been praying a lot and reading through the Bible and just trying to understand what it is to seek God's will first. Uh, I'm going to be reading from 1 Chronicles 28, starting in verse 9. I'll be reading from the ESV. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Um, I think there's a couple really good things in this verse that really spoke to me. First of all, when I go into prayer, often I go and it's almost like I'm in a like a business meeting, and I'm trying to make a proposal to God that he would align with my desires, that he would want to do my plan, because my plan's good. I've thought about it. Uh, And I'll go in there, and I'll be like, God, please make it rain this week. I could really use rain. Or, God, if if you're willing, please make it so that this trip works, or these plans align, and all this kind of stuff. And I go in there, and I'm like, my plan's great. God, come jump on board. Uh, and I've realized how, how foolish that is. Um, the other thing I've noticed in this is that if we seek God's will, he will show it to us. If we go looking for God, he's not going to keep it secret. He tells us what his will is. And he tells us that through scripture. And I've always thought of it as our relationship with God allows us to more and more understand his will. Kind of like if you talk to a family member um, every day, you can often tell what they're going to do before they go and tell you what they're going to do or what their desires would be. So like, I know if I do an action, whether or not my mother is going to call me about it later and tell me, David, that was foolish. But if I never talk to her, I'll never know what her desires would be. And I think the same thing happens with our relationship with God. The more that we spend time in his word, the more we spend time in prayer, the more we seek his will, uh, the more we get familiar with the things that he would desire for us, and I think it's easier to see what his wills and his desire in our life would be. 
So I'm just going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, humble my heart. Uh, allow me to, to seek your will and that uh, you would be building your kingdom on this earth, not our kingdom. That we would be seeking what you have for us, not trying to convince you to do what we have. Lord, uh, our wisdom is foolishness to you, God, and, and you are so much, so much more, and you have so much more for us, Lord. I just ask that you would show us your will, that you would guide this church to, to follow you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this week, um, my granddaughter Molly went to camp, and she had a great time. <clears throat> and uh, one of the highlights which she was telling me was that a girl she got to know there became a Christian, and they gave her a purple Bible. I don't know whether it was the purple Bible that made the impression or that she became a Christian, but I just, I just thank God for um, that those things are impacting our little kids and and that, in turn, it impacts those who already have Jesus in their heart to see how his great name is praised. And I want you to help us with that this morning as you stand and sing your great name.
So, did you all bring your heresy detectors today? Now, I confess, with all my driving between Saskatoon and Swift Current, because of Kyle and Rosetown, sometimes I think I need a radar detector, but I should probably just remember to follow the speed limit. That would be smarter, right? But did you bring your heresy detectors? Now, I jest, but when I was a youth and young adults pastor, I would always joke around with uh, my young adults and young people to, uh, hey, Anywhere you go that someone's teaching the word or someone's speaking, bring your heresy detectors. Don't even trust me. 
I know, I want you to respect me as your pastor, but don't believe everything I say. You should always be testing everything with your heresy detector. And even today, with at the click of a mouse, or whatever those things are called these days, you can listen to thousands and thousands of speakers, we need to be discerning people and keep the heresy detector at hand at all times. Now, part of the reason I'm saying this is because I get to own up to something and apologize to you as a congregation today. And this is, this is going to be fun. So, first of all, um, last week, I made a grave error in something I said in my sermon. And I am so thankful for the Bible scholar individual who took the time to read and text and say, hey, pastor, I'm calling you out on this. You made a mistake here. I love it. And uh, do that anytime. Always test everything you hear with the word of God. Well, anyway, you're all going, what did you say that was oh so bad? Hopefully it wasn't, wasn't oh so bad. In last week, I was talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and was explaining that the kingdom of God is not mentioned very much in John. In fact, I said that, the king, that that word kingdom is only used once in John, which was in John chapter 18, verse 36, which I, of course, quoted last week. What was pointed out to me, though, was that kingdom is also used twice in John chapter 3. So even though that word kingdom is hardly ever used, which is how I read it and then misread it, and then spoke heresy to all of you. It's actually used three times and not once. However, the point I was trying to make was, compared to the other Gospels, and say particularly Matthew, that word kingdom is used 55 times. And so, anyway, that was supposed to be the point, but I was wrong, and I don't mind being corrected. And again, bring the heresy detector, and be in the word, and be discerning people. You know, one distinctive of being Mennonite brethren, and if you're, if you're new or visiting today, that's the denomination of our church, but one of the heritages that we have as the Mennonite brethren is something called community hermeneutic. I know that's a big fancy word, but basically community hermeneutic means that we don't believe that just the clergy or the scholars or the educated get to interpret the Bible, but we believe that the Bible can be interpreted in community. It's a community hermeneutic. And so, yes, it's great to have scholars and people that know Greek and Hebrew and the languages. We need that support in coming up with truth and doctrine. But it's a great value of the Mennonite brethren that in community, when we study the word of God together, we believe that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and practically discern what the Bible is saying. And so that's one of our distinctives, and I will always be a great proponent of it. So don't just be in the word individually, but be in the word with groups of people and get into it and have fun discussing it and fight a little bit and disagree and dig and, you know, all for the glory of God though and, and for the gospel to be, to come forth in power and truth. Anyway, that was just the first mini sermon before we get into the real one. So heresy detectors. Now I have to confess, because um, I'm too vain to wear my glasses up here, I have really big font here with my scriptures on it, so I can't read this but it very much is the scripture, just, just in case you were wondering. All right, well, last week, as I said, I talked about the kingdom, and uh, we talked about kingdom clash and how Jesus has been building and teaching what the kingdom of God really is and how much that contrasted the kind of kingdom that the Jews wanted or thought was right and especially the kind of kingdom that Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, and so last week's message for the end of John chapter 18 was about Jesus' first encounter with this Roman official named Pilate. Now, basically in context, what's been happening 
is uh, Jesus is near the end of his ministry. He knows that it's, that it's soon time for him to be arrested and go to the cross. He knows the hour is coming, his time is coming. And so in chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Jesus is arrested by the Jewish leaders of the day. And Jesus begins by um, a trial with the Jewish authorities. And they obviously accuse him of blasphemy and, uh, and many other things. And basically, they want to get rid of this Jesus guy. However, because they are subjected to the Romans, they don't have the authority for capital punishment. So if they want to get Jesus killed, they need the Romans' help. So after they have their own trial, they take him to the Roman governor for the next level of trial, and that's what we went through last week with Pilate. So you could also call last week's message Jesus versus Pilate, part one, and today Jesus versus Pilate, part two. All right, now back to this whole idea of Kingdom, and I'm going to talk today about kingdom confusion. Now, um, now the verse from last week uh, be up on the screen was John chapter 18, verse uh, 36, and it said, "Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world; my kingdom is from another place.'" We kind of unpacked that last week. Now, just to help with a little bit of definition and to get our minds around, so what is Jesus talking about when he says kingdom? And I just want to use this quote again that I used last week from Sky Justhani from a little book called What If Jesus Was Serious. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is not the church, is not where God's people go after death. It is the realm where God rules and evil is powerless. Jesus announced that his kingdom was now at hand, meaning it is within our reach. The kingdom of the heavens has broken out into our world and a new way of life is now possible. The kingdom of God is all about the fact that King Jesus rules and that the powers of evil and darkness and death have been taken care of by the kingdom. And as Jesus rules and as we, his followers, live the lifestyle and follow his teachings and live the kind of way of love and peace and reconciliation that Jesus taught, we live out the kingdom and we see the kingdom of God expand from heart to heart to person to person. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was never meant to be an institution. It was always meant to be a movement, a movement of God's spirit through followers of Jesus, living like mini-Jesuses everywhere they go, bringing that hope, bringing that message, the kingdom of God. And you know, because the kingdom is so often thought about in terms of power and control, that's why Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' teaching on kingdom is so, as I said last week, the upside-down kingdom. It makes no logical sense to us in our humanity. It is completely a spiritual kingdom and a kingdom of walking the Jesus way, which is, which is most of the time completely unnatural for us. It's only when the Spirit of God softens our hearts and changes our minds and changes our attitudes that we begin to even in a small way live out the kingdom and be true followers of Jesus. So with all of that, there's no doubt that there's lots of confusion about the kingdom. So let's get to part two of Jesus versus Pilate, or Jesus and the upside-down kingdom versus the religious kingdoms and the political kingdoms that rule the day. So, 
John chapter 19, I'm reading from NIV. It'll be on the screen as well. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me... I find no basis for a charge against him. We'll stop there for now. Now, Pilate is looking for every and any possible way to free Jesus. Already in chapter 18, he tried to set Jesus free by invoking one of the Jews' own laws. You see, the Romans gave them permission that every Passover, which was their holiest time of the year, that they could release one prisoner. And he thought, good, I can get rid of this useless prisoner that's really innocent and he's nothing but a religious fanatic. Maybe I can get the people to release him. But no, they had an agenda, they had a plot, they wanted Jesus arrested, and they cried out at the end of chapter 18, no, we want Barabbas. Now, in some translations, Barabbas is called a robber, which is kind of unfortunate because it makes it sound like he was just a typical, um, typical criminal. But really, Barabbas was like a revolutionary terrorist. He, was the, he was, would have been one of the people that would have been involved in plotting to overthrow the government and actually murdering people to have that political agenda come ahead. A true, a true uh, revolutionary terrorist is who Barabbas was. And so the irony was, um, they want Jesus killed, and yet they want what they really, they're accusing Jesus of being this revolutionary that Pilate should be afraid of, when actually who they want released is someone that Pilate would have really wanted to keep in jail, because that guy would have been a problem to him and his regime. But that ends up what's happening. But Pilate is trying, and what we're going to find out in, in chapter 19 today is Pilate's going to try over and over again to release Jesus, because these charges just aren't, aren't working. Now, at the very beginning of, of the text, when, when the Jews um, finally get to him, it says, it just starts out by saying, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, we read that, and it's kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Some of you are going, I think flogging some kind of beating thing. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, we kind of have to stop for a moment, and I, I'm sorry to some of you, there will be some things here that will be offensive because it's horrible, but Roman flogging was an absolute, torturous, horrid, horrid event. Um, you see the picture of, of what an ancient Roman, one, one depiction of an ancient Roman flog. So you see the beating pole, it would have leather thongs or straps, and then tied to the end of the straps would be little bits of bone or little bits of lead or metal. Basically, the idea of a flogging was, was that with someone um, tied up to a post with a bare back, is you would take that thing and you would lash them. And basically, the idea is, is that when those bits of glass or bone or whatever dig into the skin, they rip and tear. Floggings were horrible. Floggings often killed people even before they got to the death sentence. 
And, uh, and often people lost so much blood, went into shock. Flogging was an absolutely horrible, horrible torture. And yet it's kind of said here, just kind of like, okay, so we're not too sure that this guy is really a criminal or not, but just to appease the people, flog him. And the Romans were very, very cruel, cruel with that. Now apparently, ro the Romans had three levels of flogging that all went at sort of an ascended severity. And uh, so level three, the most severe, was the kind of flogging that they would do before someone was going to be crucified. And basically it was the kind of flogging to basically soften them up so that their death on the cross would go quicker. Whereas level one flogging, they probably would have thought was more of just a light beating. However, from the way we would interpret it or see it, it would still be absolutely horrible what, what a person would go through. So the reason I bring that up is that there's, there's, when you read um, th this account in John, it's a little bit different from the series of events that you will read in what's called the synoptic gospels. That's again just another fancy word that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're kind of the synoptic or the similar gospels. John is kind of this real unique one. But anyway, in the other gospels, the flogging happens right before the crucifixion. Now the answer to that is either that they're both just talking about one flogging, However, some historians would suggest that there was actually two floggings, that there was sort of this level one, light one near the beginning when Pilate's still trying to release Jesus, but then there was the final level three crucifixion preparation flogging that happened. So not only was Jesus flogged, um, but they put, they, they, the soldiers took him, and as we read, they started to mock him, slap him. Remember from the other week we talked about in that culture, the ultimate act of humiliation is to slap someone across the face. So everything was about shaming him and about humiliating him. That was the whole thing they're trying to do here. So they make him a crown. Now when you think about a crown, you have to see that picture there. Don't think of the uh, medieval European crowns that are these big gaudy things with gold and rubies in them. A Roman or a Greek crown was kind of like a woven, like a, a wound woven wreath. And they would be all beautiful and fancy depending on who was wearing it or it could be something horrible like what they did here. So the picture of the tree there, that, that tree is called the, the thorny date palm, and it suggested that it was from that palm that, you see how big those thorns are? I know it's hard to get context in that picture, but these weren't just like little sticky thorns, little things on rose bushes or anything. These are like big thorns that can be really, really sharp and really, really painful. And so they make this crown of thorns, and the whole idea, again, was humiliation, but it was also pain. So you have to imagine, after Jesus is flogged, where his back would be just completely, don't even want to say the word, but you can imagine, and now his head and scalp would be profusely bleeding because he's got thorns jammed in it. And then, to mock him further, they put a robe on him. Now, purple is the color of royalty, so of course they're mocking him further about being the king of the Jews, and, and so they put a robe on him. And so then the moment comes. So Pilate, that the soldiers have roughed him up, all of this, and now Pilate's going to bring Jesus, bleeding, broken, hurting, with the, with the crown of thorns, the robe, and brings him in front of the people. Now, what's significant here is there's this moment where Pilate brings him to the people and he says, here is the man, or he says in many translations, behold the man. And there's a famous Latin saying that has captivated artists over the centuries. 
So that moment of Pilate presenting Jesus, that behold the man, it's interesting to, if you're at all into art or art history, there's been so many paintings and depictions of this scene. So just for interest's sake, I just put a, put a couple up there for you to see. It's interesting how different eras of art, just how they portray things so differently, right? I mean, on the one, Jesus looks pretty cleaned up, right? Doesn't look anything like what I'm describing. And the other one, he looks a little bit more bruised and battered, but I'm sure it would have even been far worse than that. Anyway, I just wanted you to, to see that, and just that was, that was the moment. Now, historians would suggest that what this is what was Pilate's strategy here was he brought Jesus before the people in this moment because he wanted to say, look, this guy has been humiliated. He's completely now in submission to me and you. He's taken his punishment. Just, just forget it now. Like he's been punished enough, mocked enough. Let's, let's just set him free. They, he thought that they would see this and that that would be enough. But his whole plan backfired because when he gets up, and, and they see Jesus with a, crown, with, a, with a crown and see him with a purple robe, the Jews are just incensed because they hate him. They want nothing to do with all of the mockery of him being called their king, and they resent it, and so they're mad, and they, rather than this working for Pilate, they just shout even more, crucify him, crucify him. Now, I went into quite a bit of detail there because I kind of wanted to address this part of kingdom confusion. Now, perhaps you've struggled with this like I have. Often the perception is, is that the kingdom that Jesus talks about seems to be a kingdom that, well, it seems kind of weak. It seems kind of like it's a kingdom that's about, about like, like when Jesus is, is in trial and everything, you know, like he's non-resistant, he doesn't defend himself. He just passively takes all the punishment. He doesn't push back. He just takes it all and lets it happen and responds in kind. And then Jesus, when he teaches about the kingdom, he's modeling it there, but it all comes from his teaching. Have you ever been confused over feeling at times like, it sounds like the kingdom feels weak, and that when we talk about Jesus, it's like, are we, are we following a faith that's like a strong faith in a, in a, in a leader that's, that's a strong man that was a hero or it kind of almost maybe seems like, is he more of a coward? What, what's going on here? And I know that when often when, when people are resistant to the gospel, often it's because Christianity seems like a religion for the weak. It doesn't seem like something strong and admirable. So where is the confusion here? I don't know if you've struggled with that or met people who have struggled with that. I certainly have at different times in my life. So to illustrate, I want to, I want to tell you a, a story from my past. Oh, did you, that he went there already. Okay, that's all right. It'll, it'll explain in the middle of why I'm going to Rambo. And some of you that are young, you're going, who? Okay, I'll explain in a bit. Anyway, a number of years ago, when I was a youth pastor in Calgary, um, our church went on a missions trip to Nicaragua. And it was mostly our youth group, but it was, it was a pretty awesome trip. Well, anyway, one, on one of the nights of this missions trip, there was going to be like this youth bonfire kind of out in the woods somewhere. It was about a mile walk from town, and um, it was going to be a youth group event. So being a youth pastor, I thought, hey, I know what youth events are like. I was picturing what kind of kids were going to be there, and I was supposed to share my testimony. Okay, Now, I'm pretty young pretty nervous, pretty scared, but I'm going to have to share my testimony. 
So we get out to this bonfire, and it's dark, like it's like seven or eight at night. Um, and the youth that are at this bonfire are all like 16 to 20-year-old males. And basically what I was told later was, was because it was after dark, the girls weren't going to come. And there was, I don't know what was going on, but basically what I was picturing as a youth group was just, I think, about 20 or 30 really tough looking young Nicaraguan men. And I'm going, here I am, you know, little brought up in the Christian home, um, you know, what insecure white boy from Canada, and I'm supposed to share my testimony? I'm just like going, oh no, what am I going to do? So I basically completely changed, I threw out what I'd prepared to do, and just basically had one of those desperate help me God moments. And so this is what I did. I basically talked about that, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and a lot of people don't like or respect Jesus because they think that Jesus is weak, Jesus is a coward, and that Christianity is that kind of a, that kind of a following. And uh, I said, you know, when we think of someone tough, we think of Rambo. <laughs> now, if you'd ever watched the Rambo movies... They're pretty old already, but the, the iconic scene in Rambo is where he sews up his arm, right? The gushing blood, but he's so tough that he sews his own arm and then gets back into battle and kills a bunch of people. That's a true hero, and that's the picture of manhood, right? So I talked about Rambo, and then I went on to say, you know, we can think that Rambo is really tough. Well, let me tell you about what Jesus went through in the crucifixion. And then I did what I just did with you and explained about flogging and just the torture that Jesus would have went through and, and so on. And then basically I ended it with, hey, Jesus is no coward and being a Jesus follower is not about following a weak religion. It's actually about someone who is so strong and such a hero that they willingly gave up their life and went through all of that so that we could have life. And so anyway, that was, that was my testimony, and, and I had no idea. I had no idea whether they were just mocking me or whatever. But it's just what's, what's so interesting when you're in another country is because you're the foreigner, they listen to you. So that's kind of scary too. But Well, anyway, um, I have no idea what happened, but later the missionary told me. He said, I don't know where you got Rambo from, he said, but, but that, he's a hero to the young people here. Like to the young men, Rambo's the hero. He said, how did, how did you know? And I was like, so anyway, that was, that was a small God moment I take in that he helped me in that situation. But again, I just wanted to illustrate where a lot of that, some of that kingdom confusion comes from this idea of, is the true Jesus kingdom, why does it seem weak? Well, you know, as I thought about this, and yeah, you can go to all the physical stuff Jesus went through, but I wonder if the toughness or the strength of Jesus wasn't evidenced in a lot of other ways too. You know, so as I thought about this more and I thought, okay, Lord, how do I apply this to my life? I just want to tell you what I wrote down. Here's the, here's, here's the question for me that I pass on to you. What takes more strength? Demanding my rights? Demanding justice? Wanting revenge? Holding a grudge? Or forgiveness and submission. What takes more strength? I think if we want to look for a hero that modeled the greatest strength imaginable, it's the Jesus we worship. 
there's nothing weak about the kingdom. It may take the most courage of anything we'll ever do to even attempt to live the kingdom life that Jesus called us to. All right, well, back to the, back to the story. So let's pick it up at verse. We'll move on from Rambo back to the scripture. John chapter 19, now verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. All right, well, we'll, we'll stop there for a moment. Now, the Jewish strategy to get Jesus killed comes to the point now where they're going to play their, they've, they've played their political card, as in accusing Jesus as king, and how that would be a threat to the empire and a threat to Pilate. They played that card as convincingly as they could, and basically that didn't work. It was turned against them, and now they've got this mock king Jesus with the crown, and, the, and they hate it. That wasn't working. So their next strategy is to go from the political card to the religious card. So they say to Pilate, we have a law, and according to our law, this guy has committed blasphemy because he's claimed to be the son of God. And in a Jewish understanding, being the son of God means that you're basically saying you're equal with God. And so that was complete blasphemy. And according to their law, Jesus must die for that blasphemy. Now it says that after they say that Jesus calls himself the son of God, Pilate was greatly disturbed or greatly troubled. Okay, why would Pilate care? Why would he be troubled by this? Well, there's a couple possibilities. First of all, son of God was a line or a title used by Roman Caesars. So to the Caesars who wanted to be deified or claimed to be God, that was the title they used. So it was a well-known title in the Roman Empire, Caesar, son of God. And so that claim to be son of God was huge and had huge implications politically for what was going on here. The other reason, and maybe it's both, that, that Pilate would have been really disturbed by this is I told you last week that Pilate as a Roman leader would have been very educated and well-versed in Greek philosophy, but as well, living in ancient times, he also would have been very mystical. So in terms of believing in omens and believing in, in all kinds of mysticism and the gods, like that all would have been a huge part of his worldview as well. So the fact that someone is being claimed to be the son of God and perhaps different rumors he heard about the things that Jesus had done. And then also in Matthew chapter 27, one of the other gospel accounts, it tells the little story of Pilate's wife. And Pilate's wife came to Pilate and said, I've had a dream about this guy. I think he's innocent, have nothing to do with this. So you can imagine that if Pilate feels very, very much about this and his wife's having dreams, He's, he's getting scared even from a spiritual point of view as to what's going on here. And so even when he says to Jesus, well, where are you from? It's not a geographical question, really. It's not, are you from Nazareth or Galilee or whatever? It's more of like, where are you from? Like, is there any possibility that there's some kind of supernatural thing going on here? 
I think he might be, he might be thinking that way and he's getting afraid by, by all that's going on here. So that was, that was the next strategy that the Jews used. So Jesus now and Pilate have this very interesting power encounter. And Jesus uses, uses this line that's amazing in, in verse 11. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now this is classic John. John loves the double meanings here. See, so it's very likely that what Pilate heard was, I have authority over you because I'm under Caesar's authority. Caesar gives me authority over you would have probably been what Pilate was understanding, whereas Jesus was obviously referring to God Almighty. And Jesus himself, earlier in John, go back to, believe John chapter 10, better get your heresy detectors out now that I'm remembering, but Jesus talks about how I lay down my life willingly. I have the authority by the Father to lay down my life. I give it. And so Jesus is basically trying to school Pilate a little bit in what true authority is, what true power is. Pilate doesn't quite get it, but Jesus declares it here. And then the second part, he says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So who is he referring to there? Well, again, there's some debate. Some would say maybe he's referring to Judas. Maybe, maybe not. Most scholars, though, would agree he's probably either referring to Caiaphas, the high priest, or just to the Jewish leadership in general, that they're more culpable in the situation because they're the ones that, that handed him over. So it's a very interesting exchange here as Pilate's getting, getting really worried about, about what's going on here. So let's finish the story now from verse 12. So from then on, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Again, some scholars would suggest that this was a really long process. And Pilate, Pilate's kind of gone from, this is an annoyance, to, okay, this is starting to freak me out a bit. I don't want to be guilty of anything here. Can we just please get this over with? Can you this, please release this guy? But they push and they push. Anyway, keep going. So verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Wow, what a scene. So, the Jews and their strategy to get rid of Jesus, they played the political card. That didn't work. They played the religious card. Got them a little bit further, but still didn't completely work. So now, step three, let's go back to politics. And they played the dagger of the political card. And that was suggesting to Pilate that he was no friend of Caesar. Now, what we have to understand is that in the Roman world, friend of Caesar was a title. And if you were a very, very loyal, loyal subject or governor or military commander or whatever, Caesar might grant you the title of friend of Caesar. So it was very, very honorable to have that title friend of Caesar. 
So the Jews were smart to use that to have Pilate fear for his political life. The other thing that historians tell me is that the Jews were notorious for sending delegations to Rome to the Senate and to others, anyone who would listen to them, complaining about their leaders to say all the things they're doing and all the atrocities they're doing. And uh, Pilate probably is guessing, there, if, if this goes to Rome, that I let someone live that was um, you know, opposing Caesar and that I'm not a friend of Caesar, he just started to realize this, this is getting too political messy and this is his own career at stake. They, they basically got him with this whole friend of Caesar thing. So, Pilate's finally had enough, finally can't take it anymore, he's finally just gonna give in. And so, he brings Jesus out to what's called the bema seat in the Greek, but the judgment seat. And it was a, it was a stone, a raised stone platform where he would sit to give his verdict. It was kind of his seat of authority. And from there, sentences Jesus to death. Now, there's one more controversy here that, that's, that's kind of fun to bring up. It's a bit of a conjecture. Why does John say it the way he does? Now, the scripture and the English translations we have all seem to make it really clear that it was Pilate that sat down on the seat. But, but because of the way the Greek language is here, there's some speculation that maybe Pilate sat Jesus down. Now, again, the theologians and the scholars, they, they debate this with the Greek and they, go, they have a lot of fun with it. But here, here's why the speculation or the conjecture is interesting to me, and I hope to you. And that is, John throws in some information here that it's kind of like, well, why is John saying that, well, this is about noon in the prepara preparation for the Passover? Now, what happened during the preparation for Passover was that all of the priests were preparing the lambs for slaughter for the Passover meal. So right at that time, the priests are preparing all the lambs that are going to be slaughtered. And in true John type of imagery, at that same moment, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sitting on the bema seat to become the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb. Isn't that interesting? So again, we don't know for sure. But either way, Pilate and or Jesus are on this bema judgment seat and Pilate gives his verdict. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, who gave up his right to be God and chose to put on flesh to become human, human suffered all this humiliation and willingly laid down his life in order to purchase our lives, in order to usher in his kingdom the upside-down kingdom that's supposed to revolutionize the world he created and loves. Now, the last thing that happens here is this incredible act of blasphemy. You see, the Jews are accusing Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. But now, the Jewish leaders are going to do something that seems absolutely unthinkable. You see, one of the, what, what the Jews maybe hated the most about the Romans 
There was so much they could have hated about them. But I think what they hated the most about them was, was that emperor worship or following or following the emperor was basically equal with following God. It was like the emperor is God and you worship him. And many, again, like I said, many of the emperors claimed the title son of God. They claimed deity. So the biggest reason that the Jews resisted the Romans was that for them to acknowledge or follow Caesar, they had to break the first commandment, which was an anathema, pure blasphemy. And yet here in this moment, it just it makes my whole skin crawl when I read it. That when Jesus is presented to them, here's the king of the Jews. And then what's their final political game and retort to Pilate? We have no king but Caesar. Listen to this quote. It's on the screen as well by a scholar named Talbert. He says, it's it's the next slide there. It says, "Their, their words drip with irony. Instead of, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Besides you, we have no king. The hymn sung at the conclusion of Passover. Judaism's priestly leadership confesses, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. So as I thought about this, yeah, I mean, my skin crawls. And then I have to think about the Jews and think about how easy it is for us when we read scripture to go, oh, those dumb Jews, look what they did here. Or we, like the, what we do with the disciples, right? Oh, those disciples were so dumb, they never got it. What we have to remember is, is that these Jewish priests and leaders, they were fighting for what they believed to be true. They were fighting for everything that they thought was right. They were fighting for Torah. They were fighting for scripture. They were fighting for for tradition. And, And in their minds, Jesus was a blasphemer that they could prove to you from the scriptures was not the Messiah and that they needed to stop this evil in order to do the right thing for God and the right thing for their nation. And they were passionately believed that they were 100% right in this. Why did Saul of Tarsus gleefully kill Christians before he became Paul? Because he was so convinced that he was right, that he was saving the true religion, saving God, saving Yahweh, saving Torah, saving the scriptures. So we've got to keep that in mind. These guys weren't just like, oh, they knew they were wrong, but they're just pure evil. No, they were completely convinced in their religious passion that they were doing the right thing. So as I thought about that, and then I had to think deeper, and again, what the Holy Spirit always does to me is says, okay, Don, now I get to mess with you. So I'm going to share with you again my question. Here's the question that I felt the Holy Spirit put in my heart. Don, what are you willing to compromise for your agenda? Wow. What am I willing to compromise for my agenda? You know, I'll start with a bit of confession. I'm a pastor. 
and on behalf of many pastors, I would say sadly this often happens. That pastors get so focused on a vision or get so focused on the way they think the church should go or be that they sometimes lose sight and compromise that ends up hurting people or causing more dissension in the church happens, but it comes from this innate, innate conviction that they're following God and doing the right thing for the church and they want to move in this vision. And I've sadly seen it happen many times. And I know I've done it. I had to wrestle with God on that. But you know, in every part of our life, whether it's in this scenario, whether it's in our our relationships, wherever they may be, what are we willing to compromise for our agenda to go forward, for what we want to happen? I wonder, if I have to compromise the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, the very core principles of the kingdom of God, if I have to compromise any of those to move forward an agenda I have, I think I'm on dangerous ground. I think I'm no different than the Jewish leaders who said, we have no king but Caesar, even though they hated saying it. It was a compromise that was necessary to do the right thing. Oh, Lord, help us. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's pretty deep, right? But again, I don't stand up here condemning. I stand up here as a human who struggles like you. But I think we've got to be honest about how easy it is to compromise when we get so convinced that we're right. And yet the kingdom way is the kind of humility that can have people respond, us respond like Jesus did. We're in face of all of the accusation against you that is such ridiculous wrong accusation that you don't have to fight and defend yourself. But you stand in humility and you willingly lay down your lives for others. That's the kingdom. That's the Jesus way. Why is it so confusing? Because it's so hard. Because it's so counter to our humanity and to even what makes rational sense to us. It's the upside down kingdom. But it's the radical kingdom we're called to live if we're going to see a transformed world. We don't see a transformed world by the church raising up arms and pushing for their rights, and we've tried that. And we had a really messy church. And now it's messy too, just different kind of messy, but we still want to see kingdom come in man's ways, our ways, rather than really digging into the Jesus kingdom. All right. Well, since that felt really heavy to me, maybe it didn't to you, but I thought maybe to respond today. So we'll, we'll sing in a few minutes, but I want to do something that I haven't done with you here yet. I'm going to the mic. You should be afraid. <laughs> but I've had you share things at different times, um, but I just thought, so as you've been thinking about maybe this message or, uh, or this little bit of time we've been talking about the kingdom, I'd just like to open the floor for a few minutes if anybody's got like something in your heart or spirit that God's been speaking to you that you just want to briefly share, or if you have a question. I can't promise you I can answer it, but I'd certainly be, be happy to take them. So I know I'm putting you on the spot, and we don't have time for many sermons, but we do have time for, for just a quick word. But I'd love to just open it up. 
Anybody got a question or even just a thought from the scripture today? Something that impacted you that hit your heart. And it can be completely different from the direction I took the scripture today. Community hermeneutic. You can read and interpret scriptures too. So what might God be saying to you? Or if you have a question. Oh, everybody's pretty quiet today. Oh, good, thank you. Welcome here, by the way. I was just thinking about what you were saying about how they said they only had Caesar as their king and nobody else. <clears throat> and it made me kind of think about how we can get so steeped in worldliness and like our own lusts of our flesh that you just, you, you don't even see who the Lord is in your life anymore. Hmm. And it seems like even though they knew him, they didn't know him to say such a statement. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else comment or thought on the text today? I read a verse this week that I shared with someone else and we were trying to figure out kind of what it meant. Uh, the kingdom is in Matthew eleven twelve. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. It doesn't sound very passive. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I don't want to go into a long thing on that, but uh, when, you, when you understand the kingdom spiritually, you know, when the scripture talks about our battles not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers of this dark world, the, um, the spiritual fighting in the heavenlies and in the dark places is, um, is going to, at time, especially that kind of terminology. So that would just be one small answer, but we could unpack that more. But yeah, there's definitely times when following the kingdom becomes so, it angers people who hate it to the point where having to move forward in it, you know, may, may cause conflict, and sadly it does. Anyway, really good question, though. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, when I'm thinking of how you were talking about the flogging and, and how much Jesus suffered for us, and we always pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth mm-hmm. as it is in heaven. But what does that take for us to live that, that out? Mm-hmm. Are we going to be able to be, am I going to be strong enough when I have to stand up like Jesus did? Mm-hmm. Will, I, will, will I be able to stand up to the beliefs that I really believe in from the Bible? When persecution comes, will I be able to say then that kingdom come and will I live through that? I wonder about that. Mm. We need to be really strong if we're going to do that. Thank you. Me too.
Anyone else? Oh, of course, Tim purposely waits till I'm at the other side of the room. Don needs to lose a few, so that's good. As you spoke about the Jewish leaders believing that they were, they were correct in their beliefs, I wonder how often when we are faced with conflict, do we forget to go to the scripture and to what God is what God has taught us and what God commands of us hmm. in an effort to put forward our own, our own views and beliefs that we feel are, are valid. Hmm. But how often do we forget to consult the scripture before we formulate our response? Hmm. Yeah, good point. Thanks, Tim. All right. I know you're all saying, you said at the beginning of the service to thank us because it's so beautiful outside and now you're extending the service on us. <laughs> That's good stuff. I love hearing from all of you. And like I said earlier, please feel free to contact me um, if you have questions or even just want to talk or just have someone pray for you. Um, yeah, you don't even need a big reason, but I'd be wide open to it. And you can push back on all my heresy too, anytime. All right, last call. Okay, worship team, come. And I know I asked some pretty hard questions today. And uh, if they're just from Don, then let them go. If the Spirit's speaking to you, let me encourage you today to respond to the Holy Spirit within you. And uh, yeah, let's respond with the beautiful words of this song and Give King Jesus the glory and respond to him. Thanks. Please stand and sing with us.
thank you that I believe that you've spoken to us this morning. I thank you that we have opportunity to worship you. How blessed we are to be able to do that. Thank you for your great love. And help all of us to go in that love and in your peace. Amen. Have a good week.